Good morning. What a blessing it is to finally be here for singing school. Um, I grew up, and I say grew up, I matured uh, at this congregation. And one of the things when I got into church work, I told Elizabeth we got married and moved to East Texas and uh, began holding meetings, and I held a weekend meeting here from time to time, and I said, you know, someday, maybe, just maybe, I'll get to preach at singing school. Sean called me back in 2019 and said, hey, we want to book you for singing school for you to do the preaching. The first thing I said was, are you sure you don't want me to do the singing instruction? And he said, we've heard you sing, so yes, uh, we'll take your preaching over your singing. Um, and I said, absolutely, we would love to come be a part of that work with you guys and, and help in any way we can. And then March of 2020 came, and, and we canceled that year. And I said, well, maybe it's just not meant to be for this year. And last year it came and went and canceled. And I said, maybe it's just not meant for me to be at singing school. Um, but here we are, June of 2020, and I want to tell you it's a great blessing uh, to be here with you and to share this week. There's a lot of excitement in the air. We have a lot of young people. Uh, with that comes a lot of energy. Uh, so just wait till Friday morning, Scott. Um, that energy will wane after Six Flags. Um, but we are really excited about our time with you. And I'm excited to spend the week with you guys. I'm excited to see new friendships and uh, bonds made between kids that are all over the United States. I'm excited to be with my family uh, through this week. But I'll tell you, the most exciting part of this week to me is I get to talk to an audience of people about Jesus. Every service this week is about Him. There's a lot of wonderful things that will be accomplished, but this week you're going to hear the message of the cross every service. And before you roll your eyes and say, oh, I know about the cross, I want you to understand something. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that to the world, the cross, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to us, it is the power of God. When I think about the power of God, we're going to go back to the very source of the power of God this morning and throughout our week together. The Apostle Paul again said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So why would we not be excited to talk about the very thing that is the power that God gives to humanity to find salvation and find the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be partakers of a great victory that Christ has already won? I want to tell you the story of the cross does not get old. As we commune every first day of the week, that isn't just something we come to check off our list. It is actually the very essence of who we are as God's people. And what a blessing it is to be able to turn the pages of those who were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, His ministry, and ultimately His sacrificial death and His resurrection, that we can turn the pages of our Bible and we can learn what they got to see firsthand. And I want to tell you, I'm grateful that I did not see the cross. The cross was not pretty. The cross was death. Our theme verse this week is Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the Apostle Paul took something that was 
ugly, that was uh, not popular to talk about in an execution and a death of someone who was put on a cross. And he said, that's where my glory is. So if that was his glory, where would our glory be found today? I want to tell you, your glory is not in yourself. Your glory is not in your life. Your glory is not in anything that you can accomplish in this world. Your glory needs to be found in the same place that the Apostle Paul said his glory was, and that was in the cross. So this week, guess what we're going to do? We're going to boast about the cross. We're going to look at it from the perspective of different people who saw Jesus die and maybe think about what is it that they would have been thinking about. What are the things that they would have experienced? And ultimately, hopefully, gain a greater appreciation and perspective for that day that changed the world. There are a number of dates that stick with us throughout history. December 7th, 1941. A day that will live in infamy. November 22nd, 1963. January 28th, 1986. That's the first one of those dates that I was alive. And I was sitting in a kindergarten classroom and we had wheeled a TV into the uh, library. We didn't have TVs in our classrooms and monitors everywhere. And all of our kindergarten class was watching a space shuttle take off. And we watched as the Challenger exploded. And I remember the fear and panic in my kindergarten teacher's eyes as she shut the TV off, wheeled it off, said, okay, back to class. What happened? September 11th, 2001. I was in a college classroom at Texas A&M Commerce with Aaron Huddleston. World Civ, I think. And that day we both happened to show up. We had an agreement that only one of us had to go. And we'd cover for each other and take good notes. But that morning, we were both there. And I remember walking after class, hearing something had happened, and walking up to get a cup of coffee and seeing the TV and the news and seeing the second tower get hit with a plane. March of 2020. You remember what happened March of 2020? You know, there's a lot of dates that we could think about and talk about that are impactful upon our culture, our society. There are dates that are impactful to you. I want to tell you, January 3rd, 2004, my anniversary. I better always remember that one, guys. Those are important dates, the birth dates of your children. But you know, none of those dates really change the world. But this morning, we're going to examine a single day that forever changed the landscape of humanity. And what Jesus' death accomplished was the perfect plan of God. This morning, I want you to understand that Jesus' death on the cross was not a plan B or a plan C. Oftentimes, as we study the scriptures, we look at, well, God gave Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. He created them, put them in the garden and gave them commands and they disobeyed. So that didn't work. So he had to go and and give a law to Moses. And, And through that written code of laws and the prophets, you know, no man can be justified. So that wasn't good enough. So finally, he said, okay, I'll send you a savior. We need to understand and appreciate Jesus was the only plan from before the foundation of the world. So as we read about the cross and study about the cross, what we're seeing is the perfect plan of God in its fulfillment. And that perfect plan of God includes you and I. And by that cross, this morning we have a Savior. 
So I ask you to join me this morning. We're going to go through a journey together. Over the last few days of the life of Jesus Christ. It's Wednesday afternoon outside the city of Jerusalem. A couple of days ago, a man named Jesus and his disciples entered into Jerusalem and a great controversy has begun. You are intrigued by this gathering and begin to follow this man Jesus because of the things that you have heard regarding him. You've heard that he teaches in the temple and you understand him to be a man of great wisdom and knowledge regarding the law and the writings of the Torah. Much excitement and intrigue surround this man whose name is Jesus. Some have said that this man is simply a teacher or a rabbi. Some have rumored that he has performed miracles and many marvelous things that only someone descending from God could perform. Some call him a blasphemer. Some say that he has claimed himself to be the Son of God and he is a rebel who violates the laws of Moses. Others have said that it is certain that this is the Messiah that had been promised to fulfill the will of God and bring salvation to Israel. Some say he is certainly that Son of God, but you want to see for yourself. Two of this man's disciples have been sent into the city to prepare the Passover meal that will take place the next day. It's now Thursday after sundown. Now the day being Thursday at the time of the Passover, you see this man and his disciples heading toward a room where the Passover feast has been prepared. The command to eat the Passover lamb immediately after sundown is about to be fulfilled by this man Jesus and his closest disciples. You see he and the twelve enter into the room where the feast had been prepared by Peter and John. During the Passover meal, something else happens and one of the disciples named Judas leaves the feast and passes by you headed down the street toward the temple as you wait for the next move of Jesus. The night continues on and Jesus and his 11 disciples now come down from the upper room where they had partaken of the Passover. There is an emotional strain upon the face of Jesus and they begin to depart from the city. They are heading east of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley toward a place called the Mount of Olives. You are aware that this had been a favorite place of Jesus when he was in or around the city of Jerusalem. It was on this mount earlier in the week that he sat with his disciples and told them about the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. The journey from the upper room to the western section of Jerusalem to this Mount of Olives took approximately 30 minutes. You begin to join yourself on their journey to Gethsemane. Jesus continues teaching as they walk together. Thomas, one of the twelve, asked Jesus how they are to know where Jesus is going. Jesus says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. You begin to wonder, what does this teaching mean? Is this man crazy? Could he really be the one that's prophesied of? The Messiah, the Savior? Hundreds of questions swirl in your mind as you consider the words of Jesus. As Jesus continues teaching and speaking to his disciples, he speaks of such things as a Holy Spirit that he would send to comfort them. Predictions of his own death and ultimately his resurrection from the dead. His speech and conversation strike you as that of a madman. 
You began to walk away, but a twinge of curiosity still remains, and you question within yourself, what if he truly is who he claims to be? You decide to stay and continue your observation as you've now reached the Mount of Olives, or the Garden of Gethsemane. In the middle of the night, you ask yourself, why is this man at this garden, at this hour, with these disciples? You notice him giving them instruction. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall go and pray. After giving them instructions, you notice Jesus and three of the disciples journey a little further into the garden. From a distance, you notice Jesus now leaves those three and continues his walk deeper into that garden. He alone bows himself to the earth and apparently begins to pray. You notice also that his disciples who had began praying have now fallen asleep. Jesus concludes his prayer and returns to his disciples and then again goes away and prays a second time. After his second prayer, Jesus comes again to his sleeping disciples, returns to pray for a third and final time alone, and you can hear his words through the silence. Father, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see Jesus returning to his disciples after this prayer, and you notice that his sweat appears to have mixed with blood somehow. This man must be experiencing a tremendous amount of emotional strain and and distress, and you begin to wonder, what is it that this man is facing that would cause this type of distress? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's interesting that St. Luke, the physician, is the only one to mention this. Every trick imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away this description, apparently under the mistaken impression that this just doesn't happen. A great deal of effort could have been saved had the doubters counted the medical literature. Though very rare, the phenomenon of hematidrosis, or bloody sweat, is well documented. Under great emotional stress of the kind our Lord suffered, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing sweat with blood. This process might well have produced marked weakness and possible shock to Jesus. As you ponder the blood dripping and dropping as sweat from this man's forehead as he rejoins his disciples in the garden, your attention now shifts to what looks like an angry mob rushing toward him. You notice that this mob consists of religious leaders from Jerusalem, armed Roman authorities, and they're all being led by the man named Judas, who was one of the twelve. You're once again confused. You ask within yourself, why is Judas escorting an armed mob to a place where Jesus has simply come to pray to God? As one of the servants of the high priest approached to take Jesus into custody, you see one of the disciples named Peter draw his sword. He swings at the servant's head. The man's ear is severed from his body and falls to the earth. Jesus instructs his disciple Peter to put away his sword and then reaches down for the ear of Malchus and places it back on his head and heals him. This 
you certainly had never seen before. You began to think, maybe he is who he's claimed to be. Maybe he is the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus is taken bound to the house of one man named Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. You can hear the inside of the house as Annas begins to question Jesus about his disciples and teachings, and Jesus responds and gives his answer. I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness the evil, but if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was next brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. It is here that the first physical trauma was inflicted. A soldier strikes Jesus across his face for remaining silent as he is questioned before Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfold him and mockingly taunt him to identify them as each passed by and spat upon him and struck him in his face. You notice that this session and trial was a mockery and nothing was really to be accomplished here. Jesus refused to be a part of such a charade and now was removed and sent to stand before Caiaphas, the high priest. As you continue to follow closely, as you watch Jesus, you wonder if this night will ever end. There you notice a couple of the disciples that had accompanied Jesus this night as well. One of the disciples is asked by a young girl at the door if he was with this man's disciples. And the disciple Peter replied, I am not. A little later, you notice this same disciple warming himself by the fire, and again he is questioned on his relationship with Jesus. And once again, Peter denies his knowledge of him. Once again, and he continues to warm himself by the fire in the courtyard of the palace. At this time, Jesus has been taken inside the palace to be questioned. Then you notice Peter by the gate. And another girl sees him and says for sure that she had seen Peter with Jesus. This time Peter not only denies the accusation but begins to curse and to swear that he did not know this man. As Peter denies Jesus for this the third time in the distance you hear the crowing of a cock. And immediately you look upon Peter and notice that Jesus in the upper chamber has looked down at Peter and Peter begins to weep bitterly. Jesus is facing a great trial, but for what? You attempt to stay close and watch the events surrounding Jesus as as closely as you can. In these early morning hours, as day is breaking, Jesus is led to the Sanhedrin Council to stand before the highest judicial tribunal within the Jewish nation. As the council assembles and begins questioning Jesus, you overhear their exchange of words. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. 
Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, You say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? We ourselves have heard his own mouth. Jesus seems to have spoken blasphemous words. And now deserves to die for his crime. You wonder once again within yourself, as you consider the events that you've witnessed, is Jesus crazy? Or is he really the Son of God? Those really are the only options that remain. After this, Jesus is taken immediately to the palace of the Roman governor whose name was Pilate. Pilate questions the men delivering Jesus as to what crimes he had committed. When not convinced by their answers, Pilate instructs the Jews to take Jesus and judge and punish him by their own laws. Immediately, the Jews propose another charge against Jesus, claiming that Jesus opposed the paying of taxes to Caesar and that he, Jesus himself, claims to be Christ, a king. Pilate could not ignore these charges and is now forced to personally investigate the matter. You ask, why do the Jews hate this man so much that they're willing to lie and make up these false accusations against him? After a short conversation with Jesus, Pilate returns to the Jewish leaders and reveals that there is no charge against him that he can see. The Jews then put forth another accusation that Jesus has caused an uproar all over Judea and had began this uproar in Galilee. Pilate responds by asking if Jesus was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was a Galilean, he realized that Jesus was under the jurisdiction of Herod. Now Jesus would be taken to stand before Herod. You follow the parade of soldiers who accompany Jesus to stand before Herod, and you continue to observe this trial being early morning. Herod had heard of Jesus and was anxious to see Jesus perform a miracle and some form of entertainment for him. Herod's men dressed Jesus in a gorgeous, elegant robe, and all that were there began to mock him. Finding no real fault because of Jesus' silence in all matters, Herod tires of the brief entertainment he had enjoyed and sends Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate now must deal with Jesus. It's now about 7.30 a.m. It's been a long night. You are exhausted and you can't imagine what Jesus is feeling. Pilate attempts one final time to release Jesus for he can find no charges against him. Pilate, as was the custom was, to allow, tell the high priests and elders that brought Jesus to him that he will release a prisoner of their choosing to them. He gives them the option of an own rebel, criminal Barabbas, and this man, Jesus. Without hesitation, they cry out, release Barabbas. The answer confounds your mind because you know of the heinous crimes of Barabbas, and yet Jesus has not been legitimately charged with any crime. Suddenly, you find yourself in the midst of a great crowd that is gathered outside of Pilate's palace. And Pilate appears and asks the multitude who they would that he should release to them, Jesus or Barabbas. The crowd being stirred up by the chief priests and the elders begin chanting, Release Barabbas! Release Barabbas! Release Barabbas! You can't believe what your ears are hearing from this crowd. And then Pilate then questions, What will you have me to do with Jesus? 
The angry crowd cries out again without hesitating, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Such hatred, such disdain for an innocent man. Pilate again reasons and questions them on what evil has Jesus done? And they simply get louder. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They even go to the point to accept the responsibility for His death. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. The sentence had been handed down. Jesus would be executed and the method would be that of crucifixion. You had seen many people executed by this method and the sentence was not surprising to you. Other questions arise in your mind if this is the Son of God. Why is He allowing this to happen? Why would God, His Father, allow this to happen? Surely He will be spared and saved from this horrible death. Confusion reigns in your weary mind as you see Jesus taken within the fortress where the physical torture would begin as it so often did with the scourging of the criminals before they are taken and crucified. You have witnessed a scourging before and you realize that many criminals never make it to their crosses because of the severity of the physical torture that Jesus is about to receive. The soldier's job was to inflict the maximum amount of pain and scourge the criminal right to the point of death and then stop. Preparation for the scourging were carried out when the prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. It's doubtful the Romans would have made any attempt to follow the Jewish law in this matter. But the Jews had an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 stripes or lashes of the whip. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather tongs with small balls of lead attached at the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the tongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscle tissue. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are then broken up and opened by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn and bleeding tissue. When it's determined by the centurion in charge the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied, allowed to slump to the stone pavement wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. Flexible branches covered with long thorns commonly used in bundles for firewood are plated into the shape of a crown and this is pressed into his scalp. 
again, there is copious bleeding and the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the human body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him in the head, driving the thorns deeper and deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back, already having adhered to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds. Its removal causes excruciating pain just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage and is almost as though he were again being whipped and the wounds begin to bleed. After this severe scourging, Jesus faces Pilate one last time. Pilate, still unable to find fault in this man, attempts to provide him his freedom to the Jews. Pilate did not want to sentence him to death because he even knew there was something different about Jesus. Perhaps Pilate's questions were the same as yours. But Pilate realized that there was nothing he could say or do to quench the mob's thirst for blood. And Jesus is turned over to them. And in doing so, Jesus is sentenced to death. It's now around 8 a.m., The death warrant has been prepared and signed by Pilate and Jesus is beaten nearly to his death and the parade of criminals commences. The place where the criminals were to be led was familiar to all as a place of execution and death. The name of the place is Golgotha, which is the place of a skull. You've now followed Jesus for a day and a half and have seen all these events unfold. And they have led to this moment, at this place, at this time, and you still don't know why. Jesus exits the palace and you say to yourself, this man cannot take much more. The cross beam of his cross is strapped across his shredded back and he's carrying it through the crowd as the soldier bearing the plaque with his charge engraved on it goes on before him. You notice the inscription reads, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Two other criminals are bearing crosses as well, but their crimes are all well known. And the death march begins. A man of Cyrene is found, and he is compelled to carry the cross of Jesus the rest of the journey. A great number of people begin to follow the procession, and some of them are women who are lamenting and weeping for this man. You hear faintly the words of Jesus comforting these women as he tells them, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming into which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross and to finish the 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha. This march continues and the criminals are prepared for their crucifixion and you continue to watch. This process taken, uh, has taken place countless times, but something about this crucifixion is different in your mind. It's now, now 9 a.m. and Jerusalem was coming to life in anticipation of the most important day of their religious year. 
This was the day of the Passover. A day of remembrance and a day of expectation. Remembrance for the deliverance that God provided the Jews from Egypt some 1,500 years earlier. And a great day of expectation of the King and the Messiah that God would send to restore the kingdom of David and his throne. But outside the city, here at Golgotha, a man who has claimed to be that very King and Messiah is about to be put to death. They offer him vinegar and gall to drink, and he tasted and refused to drink it. It was time to crucify him. The two other criminals were on their crosses. One would be on the left, the other on his right. Surely the Son of God will not die as a common criminal, you think to yourself. Simon is ordered to place the patibulum on the ground as Jesus is thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist and he drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The patibulum is then lifted into its place at the top of the stipes and the titleless reading, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, is nailed in its place. The left foot is now pressed backward against the right foot with both feet extended, toes downward. A nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrist, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms and explodes in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. He pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment. He places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the blood stream and the cramps finally partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences that are recorded. Jesus has been crucified. And sitting down, you watch him there. In the crowd, there are various reactions. Some are mocking Jesus. Others are quoting things that he had said and saying, is he ever going to do what he promised to do? You notice one of the Roman soldiers and tears off the clothing that Jesus had on and as they're tearing that clothing between them, they began to gamble and cast lots of who will take the clothing with them. You move closer and you hear the voice of Jesus utter these words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What could that mean? 
forgiveness for who? From who? You're intrigued to remain there and observe what will happen next. Then you notice one of the criminals crucified with Jesus begins having a conversation with him. And you can't make out what the criminal says, but you distinctly hear the words of Jesus as he proclaims, Today you will be with me in paradise. Once again, the questions swirl in your mind. Now you notice Jesus as he looks down from the cross where he is in pain and agony and he sees his dear friend. And disciple John. John is standing there with Jesus' mother Mary. He finds the strength somehow to utter these words Behold your mother. Then looking to his mother Mary, woman, behold your son. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. A sponge soaked with Pascha, the cheap sour wine, which is the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted to his lips. He apparently doesn't take any of the liquid. And the body of Jesus is now in extremis. And he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. It's now noon. Darkness has set in over all the land. Darkness in the middle of the day. This is not normal. You again wonder, is there some significance to this phenomenon. Jesus continues to hang there and with each breath he takes, the next becomes more difficult. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber of his cross. Then another agony begins. A crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress upon his heart. It's now 3 p.m. Darkness has not ceased since noon, and Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a quote from the 22nd Psalm. You reflect back on another portion of that psalm where The psalmist writes, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax which is melted in the mist of my bowels. Could this be the one the psalmist was describing? This would be the Savior. This would be the Messiah. This would be His Christ. You wonder if God would truly forsake His only Son. It's almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Then Jesus cries out again, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You begin to feel great pain and depression as you watch this man die. Surely, he's not just a common criminal. But surely, the Son of God wouldn't die this way. His mission of atonement complete. Finally, he can allow his body to die. 
With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters, It is finished. Jesus' head is hung. He stopped breathing. He's dead. You see the centurion there who had been there throughout the death of this man Jesus and you hear his reaction to seeing all the things that have unfolded. And he says, truly this was the Son of God. What has mankind done? Think of the consequences for humanity if they have murdered the only begotten Son of God. To speed up the death process, one of the soldiers comes to break the legs of the criminals hanging on the crosses. And when he comes to Jesus, he notices that Jesus has already died. And so instead of breaking the legs, he draws out his spear. He drove his lance through the fifth inner space between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. The 34th verse, the 19th chapter of uh, the Gospel of John reports, immediately there came out blood and water. That is, there was an escape of water fluid from the sack surrounding the heart. Not aware of it at the time, you have just witnessed the single greatest event in the history of the world. Many questions still linger in your mind as the truth about Jesus. The fact remains that Jesus is dead hanging on a cross in front of your very eyes. What kind of God would allow this? Was Jesus just another man? What about all the signs and spectacular things that you had witnessed over the past two days following Him? What did this death accomplish? You can tell me that gets old. I want to tell you I need to hear it every day. That's not fun to hear, is it? To really think that a man at the age of 33... That you had known... As the Apostle John said, as their hands have handled, as their eyes had seen of the word of life, was taken from them, physically beaten, and ultimately murdered. And you have to watch it. Remember at the beginning of the lesson, I said I'm thankful that I wasn't there to see that. Because I want to tell you, the descriptions we have in the Gospels are staggering enough. But I want you to know this morning, that death that we just talked about was not a death that occurred in vain. It was not a death that didn't accomplish anything. 
Maybe to the world at that time and to the Jews and to the Romans, they saw Jesus as just another criminal that they were putting to death. But you and I know what God saw. And I want to tell you this morning, God saw the salvation that we can have from our sins because of what He did that day. Are you thankful that you have a Savior? There's a lot of people in this room that I honestly can say I'd die for. But there's a lot of people in this world, I guarantee you, I wouldn't die for. People who have done horrible things. People who have murdered innocent children, I would not die for them. I would not give myself to save that person who made the decision to do that. But I want to tell you, Jesus did. And the reason Jesus did that is because He understood the value of the souls that God had created in His own image. And this morning, your soul is that valuable. You may not feel valuable. You may not feel important. You may not feel like you matter. I want to tell you, Jesus died to tell you and proclaim to you that you matter. And that you have a Father in Heaven who loves you enough to save you from that suffering. Because really, that should have been you on that cross for your own sins. That should have been me on a cross paying my debt before God. But my blood would not be sufficient to atone for sins. But His is. And this morning, if you have not named Jesus, if you have not accepted that sacrifice, And what we just read and studied this morning, you know what God would want for you to do today? He would want you to accept His gift of grace. And this morning, you can be buried into that death. The death where Jesus' blood was shed, the Bible tells us that we can be buried with Him in baptism, into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we can walk in newness of life. Do you understand that God hates sin? God hates sin so much that His only Son had to die to pay the debt for that sin. Does that matter to you? Or is it just another story? I venture to say if someone broke in this morning and took someone out of this audience captive and went and murdered them, it would impact us, wouldn't it? Does the story of the cross impact you this morning? If it doesn't, you need to check your heart. You need to check your life. Because all of this was done for you. The great thing about the story of the cross is that that's not the end of the story. 
His mangled body was taken from that cross and put in a tomb, and three days later, it was resurrected from the dead. And by that resurrection, He proved without a doubt His authority and who He was as the Son of God. And because of that resurrection, you and I have hope of life eternal through Jesus Christ. But without being buried with Him in baptism, you have no access to that blood. But through your obedience, all of those promises of God are passed down to you. I want to tell you, His blood is just as powerful today as it was that day some 2,000 years ago on the cross at Calvary. And we're going to stand in just a moment and we're going to sing a song about the power in that blood. And there's nothing in this life that can save me except that blood that was shed on that cross. And if you need to be forgiven of your sins... We have a large audience this morning. And I want to tell you something about people. People have problems. You know how I know that? I'm a person, and guess what? I have problems from time to time. There's no one in here that's immune from sin. But what you can be is forgiven of the debt of your sin. And you can have a new life in Jesus Christ. But you have to come to Him. And whatever your sin is... This death that we've studied was what God did so that that sin would not be laid to your charge and your account, but that that debt would be paid. You have a loving, gracious Father in heaven who wants you to come to Him. But you have to make that decision. This morning, accept the sacrifice of Jesus. Accept the death And believe in the power of His resurrection. And if you need to be baptized so that your sins can be forgiven by the blood of Christ, I want to tell you, we have water. And we have everything that's necessary for you to accept the sacrifice of Jesus today. If you're here and you're not a child of God, or you are a child of God and you have been baptized, maybe you've forgotten about that sacrifice and how important it is to your life every single day as a child of God. Maybe you need to be reinvigorated in your faith. Maybe you need to be reminded. Maybe you need to be restored. Maybe you need to be forgiven. Then we'll pray with you. But don't leave here this morning without that sacrifice of Jesus applying to you and making you a child of God. And all you have to do is come and have a seat on the front as together we stand and sing. When I sin, nothing but the blood of